You're listening to a Dwell Community Church production. If you'd like to check out more resources, visit dwellcc.org. So last week we talked a little bit about anxiety and well-being. So this week we want to sort of continue that same theme because uh, Paul brings this up in Philippians chapter 4, verse 8. And we want to camp out in that verse where he talks a lot about our mindset. That where we place our mind is crucial to our well-being. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, that is, whatever is worthy of respect, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is of good repute, worthy of admiration, if there's anything that's excellent and if anything worthy of praise, dwell on these things. Cast your mind on them. So why don't we take some of these down? I think, first of all, when he talks about what is true, in the context, he's probably talking about Scripture, God's revealed written Word. And so one of the things that God wants us to do on a regular basis is to turn our thoughts to what He has to say in Scripture and allow what the Bible says to illuminate our thinking and to influence the way we see the world. And when he tells us to do this, it's not that we're trying to do things to just make ourselves feel better, but what the Bible actually teaches is that when we look at what God says, that it's actually the truth. That it's not something that's true for me or the people who believe the same thing, but it's something that is universally true. That it's true across cultures and throughout history. He also says that we should cast our minds or dwell on what is honorable, that is, whatever is worthy of respect and that which is righteous. And likely what I think Paul's talking about here is that we should be spending time meditating on who God is and His character, that He is worthy of respect and that He is indeed righteous. Also, he says that We should dwell on what is pure. And this one's a little bit difficult to locate in terms of meaning, but James 4 verse 17 enlightens us a little bit where James says that the wisdom that is from above is first of all pure. And so it may be that what he's talking about here is the purity of God's wisdom descending down to us and influencing the way we see reality. And then he says that we should cast our mind on what is uh, worthy of love, that is um, also what is of good repute or worthy of admiration and excellent. And so I think, again, what he's telling us to do is to look at him and his character and to acknowledge his goodness and that he is worthy of our admiration and worship. And then he says, that which is worthy of praise, that we should dwell on these things. So when you look at these string of qualities that he says we should look at, the lowest common denominator in all of these is that they're very positive. And what God wants us to do is he wants us to focus in on what is positive, in part because we face a lot of negatives in this world. 
This is affirmed in other passages as well. We see, for instance, in Colossians 3, verse 1 and 2, where the Apostle Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on the things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. And he says, Set your mind on the things above, not on earthly things, for you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. So again, you see this theme of setting your mind on the things above. Or what about this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 18, where Paul again says, For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal weight of glory that far outweighs them all. In the context, what he's talking about are trials and suffering that we face in life. And he refers to those as light and momentary troubles. But he says that even though these things are difficult, that in comparison to the weight of glory that God is going to bring about, through even the worst kind of suffering we face in this life, that we can actually focus in on what he's going to do, and that changes our perspective of this world. Finally, he says in Romans 8, verse 5 through 7, that those who live according to the flesh, that is the sinful nature, have their minds that are set on what the flesh desires. But those who live in accordance with the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, and the mind that is governed by the Spirit is life and peace. So you can see that there are alternatives to what we place our mind on. That we can place our mind on the things that are of the Spirit or that which is above, or we can set our mind on the sinful desires that we have or the things that are from the earth. What he's saying here is that our mindset is incredibly important. That what we think about, what we choose to focus on, can change the way that we live. This also implies that we're in control of where we set our minds. You know, in our culture today, what we tell ourselves or what our culture says to us is that, you know, there's nothing you can do about what you think. If you're having a bad day or you're thinking about things negatively, you're, you're not going to get unstuck. That's just the way things are. So we're sort of passive in the sense that things happen to us and we have really no control over what, what we think about. And yet Scripture contradicts this and says that we do, in fact, have control. A lot of times what's happening is we're going with the flow. And if we go with the flow we encounter a lot of negatives that enter into our lives and we're going to start to see the world through a negative lens. That's just the natural course of things. And yet, what Paul is suggesting and what God is ultimately suggesting is that it may take some effort and exertion for us to actually cast our minds on the things that are positive. And that when we do so, it has a positive impact on our well-being. So why does God command us to dwell on positive things? First of all, He's counteracting a negative bent that we all have. And the reason why we have this bent is, first of all, we live in a fallen world. The Bible declares that God created the world perfectly. He created us perfectly. But at some point, the human race decided to throw off God's leadership in our lives. And as a result, God backed away and said, well, if you want to do that, then 
You can govern yourself. You can lead yourself. But here's the thing. You're going to have to live with the consequences of that. And so as a result, evil entered the world. We see that there's wars, injustice, corruption, that we face a lot of, of difficulty with our environment. And in addition to that, it's actually impacted us individually that the fallen world in which we live has actually skewed our perspective so that we see reality in a way that's not true. That, that is, out, it's, it's askew in some way. Also, we face incredible pain and suffering in this life. It's not really a matter of if you're going to face suffering in your life. It's a matter of when and the extent that you're going to experience pain and suffering. How acute it's going to be. And so there are real negatives that enter into our lives. Acts of evil that are perpetrated against us. Injustice. Sickness. A death of a loved one. All of those things can bring tremendous pain and suffering into our lives. Also, cynicism can be another factor in why we are so negative. That we, can, we believe that we're wise enough to see the underlying motives of people or situations that we're in. The famous comedian Stephen Colbert says, Cynicism masquerades as wisdom, but is the furthest thing from it. Cynicism is self-imposed blindness. It's a rejection of the world because we're afraid it will hurt us or disappoint us. Not really a funny quote, but it's insightful. Here's another comedian with a not-so-funny quote. This is from George Carlin. He says, scratch any cynic and you'll find a disappointed idealist. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't it? Part of the reason why we hold this cynical view is it's, it's a form of self-protection. We're not going to be fooled by people or situations that we're in because we have already anticipated the negative outcome or people's motivation. Also, as we mentioned last week, anxiety can be one of the driving forces behind the negativity that we have on a daily basis where our anxiety actually produces these negative thoughts because we're worried and concerned about the things that we're facing. So what's so bad about negativity? First of all, it's a lie. That's why it's a problem. You see, even though we face negatives in life, Christians should be, for the most part, the most optimistic people that you meet. And part of the reason for this is that even though we live in a fallen world where the Bible says that the human race is tumbling toward destruction. I mean, we live in a world now where we look around and we think to ourselves, I feel uncertain about the future or I feel more pessimistic about the future than I did. That even though we may look at the world this way, God says that ultimately he has declared victory over the evil in this world. And one day he is going to reestablish justice and peace and harmony on earth. And so even though things are probably going to get worse before they get better, God promises that we should ultimately see that there is an, a positive outcome awaiting us when Jesus returns. Now, 
for some of us, it may not be that we look at the world in a negative way, but that we express a very negative view of ourselves or maybe other people. We tell ourselves, you know, I'm worthless. I'm not, I'm not significant. I don't matter. If I disappeared, nobody would notice. Maybe people would be better off if I wasn't around. And so we have a negative view of ourselves. Or we say of other people because we're so frustrated, he is never going to change. He sucks. You know, when we look at people through this negative lens, it changes the way that we treat them. And when we look in the mirror and we see ourselves and we tell ourselves you're worthless, you're insignificant, it's a lie. It's, It's... according to the Bible, contradictory to what God says is true about us. You know, in our world today, uh, we see that what people tell us when we're facing, let's say, a low self-worth or low self-esteem, what our world tells us is what's important is that you accept yourself for who you are. You just got to love yourself. Get a little bit more me time. And you you just need to just Not think about what other people are saying or what they're telling people about you. Just love yourself. And yet, this sort of self-talk, this positive thinking, that's nothing new. It's been around for a really long time. I remember back in my day, there was this SNL skit called Daily Affirmations with Stuart Smalley. You probably don't remember this. But Stuart Smalley, at the beginning of every episode, would look at himself in the mirror with peaceful, you know, uh, music, and he would say to himself, you're good enough, you're smart enough, and doggone it, people like you. And he would just keep repeating that to himself. And, you know, it was, it was obviously a parody on, on this psychological thinking that what matters is that you tell yourself you matter. And yet the problem with this kind of thinking, which is nothing new, is the fact that positive self-talk doesn't work because we desire other people's affirmation, not our own, right? You see, Scripture tells us that we are valuable and significant apart from our performance or other people's view of us. You know, the Bible declares that the reason why you, va- you are valuable, why you are significant as a human being is the fact that God has created you in His image. That's why you matter. And incomprehensibly, God values us so much that He actually sent His own Son, Jesus, to come and die to purchase for us eternal life. And He says the only thing that we need to do is to turn to Him in faith. And turn to Jesus, and at that very moment, we can have that, that, that eternal life that he's offering for free. And so, God says that you are significant, not because of the things that you do or the things that you accomplish or the kind of identity that you're trying to produce. Instead, you're important because I say you're important, because I value you. And so, we're not engaging in self-talk here. When we, when we choose to focus on what God says is true about us, that we indeed are significant. The other thing is that it's self-fulfilling. 
talk to somebody who's negative and what do they say? I'm not negative, I'm just a realist. And yet you'd have to ask that person, is it possible that your negative outlook on life is actually influencing the outcome of situations that you find yourself in? Is that possible? That it's actually self-fulfilling? Think about a basketball player like an NBA player who is in the locker room and he's pacing around and he's just telling himself, you are going to miss 100% of the shots you take. You suck. Why are we even going to go out on the court? We're going to lose. I know it. What do you think is going to happen? That player is going to underperform. In fact, scientific research shows that when players engage in what is called um, visualizing, where they are able to look at what they could do on the court positively, that it actually impacts their performance. And so there's something about having a positive outlook that can actually change the outcome of situations that we're working in. This also works in the opposite direction as well, where when we look at ourselves through a positive lens or other people, it can actually change the way that we live our lives and the way that we treat others. Years ago, I heard this illustration, which is a true story about this professor who was a Christian author named Bruce Wilkinson. And Dr. Wilkinson was invited to teach at a seminary on the West Coast. And so when he arrived on the very first day, he showed up to the teacher's lounge and one of his colleagues said, hey, welcome to, you know, our university and, you know, uh, whatever you need, whatever advice you need, we're here to help you out. And he said to Dr. Wilkinson, so what classes are you teaching? And Bruce handed over this, this sheet that had all of the, last, the classes listed. And Dr. W- or Dr. Wilkinson was like, oh, what do you think of this? And his colleague was like, oh, it looks like some interesting classes. He's like, whoa, they gave you section two? He's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, oh, man. Section two, years ago, they decided to take sort of the cream of the crop where the people who did the best in the application process, they would take these students and put them into one section. And these were really the most gifted, the most brilliant students. And really, it was trying to encourage these students to progress. And they didn't want to put them in the class with some of these other students because they didn't want to hold them down. And so... Apparently, Section 2 was a philosophy of religions class, and Dr. Wilkinson actually had another philosophy of religion class that was not the Section 2 class. And just like his colleague said, immediately he noticed a difference teaching Section 2 compared to the other class. The students were engaged, they were raising their hands, eager to discuss. Their exams were just way ahead of the other ones in terms of grades. And so sometime later, the dean calls Dr. Wilkinson in just to sort of see how he's doing. And he's like, so how's, how are things going at the university? How's your experience? And Dr. Wilkinson says, it's been great. I really enjoy the students. They seem very motivated. He said, you know, one of the real shining lights of my experience, though, has been section two in my philosophy of religions class. I mean, these kids are brilliant. And the dean seemed confused. He's like, well, what do you mean? He's like, well, you know, section two, where all the gifted kids are. And he's like, "Uh, there is no section two. 
He's like, we got rid of that a few years ago. And, you know, Dr. Wilkinson was just, his jaw dropped to the floor. He's like, um, <clears throat> it does exist. I, I don't know. I, I, these kids are just better. I don't know. And so he goes home and he decides as he's mulling over, you know, the new information that he has to do the squash test. Or, you know, he takes the essays from the section two and he squashes it and he compared it to the other section and it was twice as thick as the other section. They were writing way more, they were, they were way more detailed and engaged. So the next day he goes to the registrar just to finally figure out what happened. And he says, so tell me, is there a section two that is comprised of ultra gifted students? And the registrar is like, no. And he came to realize that the only difference between these two sections was his perspective. And I think all of us have experienced this at one time or another where somebody other than our parents think that we're really awesome at something, right? Your parents are practically obligated to think you're, you're better than other people. So it doesn't really count when they say, you're wonderful, you know, but there's somebody, you know, typically a mentor or somebody that we knew who really believed in us, and they believed in us more than we even believed in ourselves. It's like they saw something in us, and that caused us to really strive to the next level, to really rise to the occasion. And so, when we believe in this negative point of view, whether it's about people or ourselves, it can actually be self-fulfilling. Also, it's really a stance of unbelief. When we look at ourselves in the mirror and we tell ourselves, you are worthless, we are directly contradicting what God says. He says, you are significant. You are worthwhile. Not because of anything that you're doing, not because you're special, but because I said you are. You are that because of who you are in Christ. And so it's a stance of unbelief when we insist on telling God that we suck or that we're not worthwhile. Now, you might be saying to yourself, I'm not a negative person. I have a pretty sunny disposition. Ask anyone you talk to. And even though maybe you have a fairly positive point of view, a lot of times that may be about other people or situations you may find yourself in, but when you look in the mirror, a lot of times you're very self-critical. Now, a couple years ago, we did this series called Finding Peace, and we listed a number of cognitive distortions that we often face, and I thought it'd be good for us to review here again. There are a few of them, we're going to kind of blast through them, but the first is called Mind Reading. That is where you assume that you know what people are thinking without having, in, with having uh, insufficient evidence of their thoughts. All of us have been in this situation before. You look across the room and you look at this woman. She's staring at you with furrowed brows. And you think to yourself, she's judging me. She thinks I suck. But the reality is she's just constipated. <laughs> I mean, she's clogged up like a shower drain in a women's ministry house right? But you don't know that. You don't know that. And so you just assume the worst, right? 
Another form of mind reading can actually get you in trouble where you assume the worst of situations and it can get you in a lot of trouble. Uh, Stephen Covey, who's a famous speaker uh, and has written many, many books, describes how one day he was on a commute in New York City to go to work and he was on a subway car and it was a pretty quiet commute until on one of the stops, a man and his young children boarded the train car. And his children were going crazy. They were yelling. They were out of control. And the man just plopped down next to Covey. And he just seemed completely oblivious of what his kids were doing. And after about 15 minutes of this guy's kids terrorizing everybody on the train car, Covey was saying to himself, I need to say something because this man seems completely oblivious to how his kids are acting. And so finally he said, sir, do you realize that your kids are disturbing the other passengers on this train? And as if he woke up from a deep sleep, he said, he's like, I'm, I'm so sorry. He said, we just came back from the hospital. My wife has been extremely ill and she just passed away about an hour ago. And I don't really know what to say to my kids. I haven't told them. And I'm just really struggling. I mean, that is probably the worst kind of mind reading that you can fall into, where you assume the worst about people without really knowing the situation that they're facing. Number two, fortune telling, where you predict the future that things will only get worse you face a situation where you made a mistake and you think to yourself, well, everything is screwed. I'm, I'm never, I'm never going to be able to do things right. Catastrophizing or magnification where you believe that what has happened or will happen will be so awful and so unbearable that you won't be able to stand it. If this happens, I don't know if I could ever live with myself. I don't know if I could ever survive if this thing happened with my friend or my loved one. Number four, labeling, where you assign global negative traits to yourself and others. What about this one, where you tell yourself, I'm a failure. And, you know, I think it's important when you have these cognitive distortions enter your mind to simply stop and think to yourself, well, what does that mean? Is it that I'm a failure as a person, or is it that at this particular task that I was trying to carry out, I failed? Those are two different things, Right? I set out to do this thing, and I made a mistake, and I failed. That's totally different than saying, as a person, I am a failure. You see, the problem with this is that you run into what's called learned helplessness. When you have decided to label yourself as a failure, that leads to complacency. It doesn't empower you. And so what ends up happening is that you feel this sense of helplessness because no matter what you do, you are a failure. And you're seeing things through that lens. Number five, negative filter or a lost frame where you focus almost exclusively on the negatives and seldom notice the positives. More on that later. But, you know, this happens to us all the time. Even even the most positive people in this room end up having a negative filter at points. You know, occasionally I'll teach at our adult ministry central teachings. And they have this system called feedback cards where you could grab a little card and you can give feedback on the teacher. 
And then three or four days later, they'll stick it into your mailbox and you can read all the feedback. And so you can just imagine, you know, the moment it gets placed in your box, you're right there. You know, and so you grab it and you're looking at it. And, you know, for the most part, people are giving very positive comments like, thanks so much for teaching, thanks for this insight, excellent presentation. I felt like this point was particularly, con- you know, convicting. So you'll get about a dozen cards that are very positive, but most of the time there's a little critique, like one little critique. Sometimes it's just a line in the card. Sometimes it's an entire card. And what happens is you get focused, you zero in on that critique, and you're just like, oh, that was a bad teaching. I really screwed that one up. And you're not even thinking about all the other feedback that was largely very positive. That's having a negative filter where you're refusing to see the positives and you're locked in on the negatives. Number six, overgeneralizing where you perceive a global pattern of negatives on the basis of a single incident. You know, if I wasn't driving so fast, I wouldn't have crashed and my friend wouldn't have been in the hospital. I'm so reckless. You see the jump in logic there? I made a mistake and therefore now I'm reckless. But that doesn't necessarily mean that because I made this mistake, it's indicative of who I am as a person. Number seven, all or nothing thinking. You view events or people in all or nothing terms. Think about getting into a fight with one of your friends. You can usually detect when you're falling into all or nothing thinking because you're using absolute terms. You always do this. You're never here for me. I can always count on you to act this way, right? Those are ways to detect whether or not you're falling into all or nothing thinking. You're thinking in black and white terms. Number eight, personalizing. You attribute a disproportionate amount of blame to yourself for negative events and fail to see that there are certain things that fall outside of your control. Or maybe the opposite side of this, which is blaming. You focus on the other person as a source of your negative feelings and refuse to take responsibility for changing yourself. You see, I wouldn't have so much anxiety if the people around me weren't putting so much pressure on me. No, actually, it's that you're putting a lot of pressure on yourself. These things that you think people are expecting of you, nobody thinks that. It's you who are placing those expectations on your own shoulders. I'd be happy if, if, if my roommates weren't so insensitive all the time. And so blaming is where we essentially put all of our problems on other people instead of recognizing our own contribution. And finally, emotional reasoning. You let your feelings guide your interpretation of reality. I'm depressed, therefore my relationships are going to fail. And so we start to see things through this negative lens. So I'm sure that when you're looking at this and you're thinking to yourself, okay, I'm not a negative person, and yet I can relate to one or more of these things. So no matter what your disposition, there is a natural bent in this direction. So how do you battle this? Well, I think, first of all, you need to break out of the lost frame, which is actually very difficult. It's interesting how memory works. It's very selective. Notice that? 
Think about how many times you have come into money that you didn't expect, where somebody gave you 50 bucks or 100 bucks, or you're walking down the street and you see a 20 on the floor, right? Probably 10, 12 different times in your life, maybe more, but you can't really remember those times in comparison to the times where you lost money, where you lost your wallet, where you lost $100. Those are the things that stick into your mind. Or think about family vacations. The times that you remember are when you crashed the rental car or when you're driving along the highway and the camper got unhitched from your truck or when you decided to go on a, on a vacation, you forgot to pack underwear. Know a friend who did that. You know, those are the things that stick out to you instead of all the positive memories that you had with your family, right? It was all the disasters that you tend to focus on. And so it's important for us to realize that it's really difficult. It takes effort to break out of this lost frame. This woman, Allison Ledgerwood, who's a professor of psychology at the University of California, Davis, decided that she was going to do an experiment to try to figure out this this, you know, half glass full, half glass empty sort of thinking. And so what she decided to do was she went to a group of people and divided them into two different cohorts. The first one, she went to this group and described a medical procedure that was fairly new and said that to the first group, 70% of the people who actually had this surgery saw successful results. And so, as you would expect, the people in this first group had a very positive view of this surgical procedure that was very new. To the other group, she said and emphasized that 30% of the people actually had complications from the surgery or that it failed. In other words, it didn't help the person with the problem that they had. And of course, the people in group two looked at it very negatively, okay? Nothing surprising or insightful from those things. But then she had an idea that she was going to go back to the group, the first one, and then emphasize that in addition to this, we need to keep in mind that 30% of the surgeries actually ended in failure, and that slightly changed people's perspective toward the negative. But when then she went to the second group and explained that 70% of the people who got this surgery actually saw an improvement in their condition, they still had a negative view. And so what that tells us is that once you get locked into this lost frame, that it takes a tremendous amount of effort and work to break out of that. And really, this fits with what Paul the Apostle was telling us there in verse 8, where he, he's telling us that we need to cast our mind on what's positive, that we should actually spend time each day thinking or dwelling upon the good things that we face throughout the day. You know, we sometimes have a bad day and we come home and what do we do? We grumble, we complain, we vent. And the thought is, if I just do that, I'm going to feel better, right? Right? So we go home, we get to our roommates, and we just regurgitate all of the terrible things that happened that day. And what happens? After about an hour of that, what? We feel great, right? No. We feel worse. And 
what scientists have shown is that when you are stuck in this lost frame, feeding into that negativity makes matters worse. What you need to do is you need to work to try to see the positive. And so try this. When you have a bad day, instead, going to your roommates and starting to acknowledge actually the good things that happened that day. And you'll notice a change in your affect and the way that you think. And really, the Apostle Paul here isn't suggesting that we simply ignore the negatives that we face in life. In fact, research shows that we try to suppress the negatives and push it down, that actually that can have really negative effects, not just on our well-being, but also physiologically as well. So what are some practical steps we can take? I think, first of all, we need to seek God's perspective. And the way that we can do that, the way we can access God's perspective is by turning to Scripture. You know, when we open up the Scriptures, we're opening ourselves up to God's influence in our thinking. You see, we have a, a perspective that is askew, bent toward the negative, and God wants to help align that so that we can see reality the way it actually is. And so when we spend time looking at what God says, not only about us, but also about the world, it actually corrects that negative thinking that we have. Secondly, we need to acknowledge a lack of control in our lives. You know, for some of us, we think that if I just work hard and if I'm detail-oriented, if I pay attention, then I can eliminate all of the bad things that could potentially happen in my life. Wrong. That's not going to work. That's only going to produce incredible anxiety in your life. When you come to terms with the fact that very little of what you see and experience in, your, in the world is in your control is the first step in realizing that God is the one who's actually sovereign and that he's good and he's involved in your life. And so that allows us to be able to relax and to trust God. And finally, we need to be able to express gratitude. We talked about this last week where spending time in a disciplined way each day for some of us, expressing gratitude is incredibly important to our well-being and being able to see things in a positive light, which is the way God sees things. You know, the real ironic thing about this whole talk about negativity is the person who knows most about the world, God, who sees every negative thing that, that happens in the world, has an incredibly positive view of the outcome of the world and of you and me. Now, I wanted to share uh, the story of my friend, Liz. And uh, she, for many, many years, struggled with depression, battled with it. And um, she talks a little bit about how she has gained some victory in this area, imperfectly. But um, I know many people struggle with this, and um, I think it's an awesome story about how God has changed her life. I guess around maybe my freshman, sophomore year of college, I started having some um, anxiety beyond what I felt was normal, and I started going to counseling at Xenos. The counselor that I met with um, taught me a lot about 
the importance of um, thinking about other people and kind of taking the focus off of myself and how when we give love, we feel love. Um, I think that um, serving others and thinking about others has been a, a big thing that has helped me through my struggle. She also kind of noticed that it seemed like even as I was trying to implement that and put that into practice, I still was really struggling and um, having a hard time breaking past the, the instability that I felt. And so she recommended that I um, look into medication. And um, so I did that through my family doctor, tried a couple of different things. It actually kind of uh, at first made things worse. Um, so then it was recommended that I go see a psychiatrist, which I wished that I had done sooner. You know, any recommendation that people gave me, I felt like I would try that. And I felt like I still was kind of like spiraling further and it was getting worse. Um, I started having suicidal thoughts. Um, I didn't really take them very seriously because that seemed like such an outrageous thing that I would never really want to engage in. So I just thought, like, oh, maybe my medication is causing that, or I'm having thoughts about wishing that I was dead, but I would never actually do that. And I think that that's actually one of the places that I went wrong, because I didn't view them as a threat, so I continued to, um, like, allow them to come into my head and... I actually did eventually um, attempt suicide. Um, I People, I think, knew that I was struggling, but I think it probably was a surprise, too. Um, so after that, I was hospitalized for a week. Um, it was all very, like, surreal and shocking. Um, even, you know, I am the one that made the choice, but I still felt shocked that it really happened. And I was amazed at the way that people responded when it happened. I thought people would be disappointed and um, want to give up on me and um, view me as like a lost cause. and. Instead, I had more visitors every single day than the workers at the hospital had ever seen. And they were all commenting like, wow, you have like an amazing support system. And we never see stuff like this. And um, people just communicated forgiveness. And I know that it was really wrong. And I think that they knew that I knew that. And they just communicated, we really want you to get better. And that even though that was kind of rock bottom, that was the first time in a long time that I actually felt hopeful. Around when I um, attempted suicide, we stepped back from leading our home church and we moved to a different home church with um, leaders that we had known for a long time that um, we had good, um, positive relationship with and they were really patient and did everything they could to relieve the perceived pressure that I felt. And 
it was helpful to like almost start over and go back to basics. I had put myself under pressure for so long that it was helpful to have someone else say, you don't need to do that anymore. With this struggle, people just going above and beyond, restructuring our, our small groups, our home churches to be able to accommodate um, supporting us. It was just incredible the kind of support we received. They took it so seriously and, and, and never made us feel bad about needing help. It was yeah. incredible. I, I wished that I had asked for more help sooner because people were so willing to give it. It's amazing that now, um, four years later, that here we are and we've got an awesome marriage and I just love her so much and seeing her be happy and joyful and serving other people in a powerful way and leading a home church together again. Now we're starting a family together, um, we're gonna have a baby and it's just all these things that are just amazing and we could have never imagined four years ago. I'm just so thankful to God and to Zenos for everything that they did for us. I am a lot better now, maybe closer to two years at this point. My psychiatrist declared me like in remission of depression. You know, it's it's hard to talk about, but at the same time, it feels like a, a, a different time in my life. Like it was, it's pretty far away and I feel like a completely different person now. I mean, I, I still struggle, especially in the winter time. Um, I still have sometimes just days, sometimes weeks of kind of those familiar feelings come back up. Um, but it's not in the way that it was. There's a, a hope that has stuck with me, I think. And um, I enjoy actually going to home church and um, being around people again. And I'm able to enjoy, you know, simple things and yeah, it really feels like that was a different life. Awesome. Yeah, I think one of the things that really uh, stuck out to me was obviously just the amazing story that she had. But, you know, at the end, she pointed out it's not like she's better and she's never had any struggles after that. And I think that that's true of people who have battled negativity or mental health issues in our fellowship is that um, they still struggle, but they have hope, and God has, over time, given them tremendous victory. Let's finish with these three verses. Paul says, I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances. I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Wow. To be content in every and any situation. That's an amazing thing. And something we're going to talk about next week. So stick around and uh, finish out Philippians with us, and you'll get to learn Paul's great secret. Yes, Lord, we know that this is not going to come uh, to us easily, that we're going to have to work to try to see things from a positive point of view, to see things the way you see them. And um, we're grateful that despite 
your omniscience, the fact that you know all things, uh, whether good or bad, that you still choose to look upon us uh, with an optimistic point of view. I pray that we can align our thinking and our perspective with the way that you see us and the way that you see other people as well. And I pray overall that we can become followers of you who exude just a positive outlook, Lord. I think we live in a world today that's just uh, wrought with so many negatives. People have uh, such a negative perspective on uh, the future and and what's happening. I pray that we would uh, be lights in this dark world and that uh, people would notice that there's something different about us. Not that we're, you know, going to be fake or to pretend like everything's great, but there's this sense of assurance and happiness that people sense in us, and we know that that comes from you. So we, we're grateful that we can have that, and I pray that we can work to break out of the negativity that we often fall into, and we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. This has been a Dwell Community Church production.